Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm turning you over to today's Spirit in Action guest host, Peterson Toscano. Every three months, Peterson shares from his Citizens Climate Radio riches, and as always, he'll be weaving together all kinds of activists and artists and thinkers and witnesses who are leading the way toward dealing with climate change and all its various aspects and manifestations. It's all yours, Peterson. Thank you, Mark. Today, I'm actually out of my studio and in the garden here in our home in South Africa, where we've been living for the past year, almost year and a half. In future shows, you're going to hear stories from South Africa. But today, you're going to meet classical musicians who take on climate change. We're also going to talk to a stand-up comedian. He uses his craft to engage audiences. And you're going to walk away with some little-known facts about chihuahuas. But first, let's meet a rebel. Two of our members knelt and prayed in front of Downing Street. So Downing Street is, is where our Prime Minister lives. It's a street that our Prime Minister and other members of, like, senior members of government live. So it's quite a well-known spot. That's Caroline Harmon from Christian Climate Action UK. So on one level, they were kneeling and praying, but they did it in such a way that they were blocking the entrance to Downing Street. At the time, our, our then Prime Minister was refusing to attend a meeting of global leaders to discuss the climate crisis. And we wanted him to reverse that decision and to go and to attend that meeting. Some of us had written letters and not had responses. or the response was, oh, he's just not going. So we knelt and, and blocked the entrance, which meant cars couldn't get in, visitors couldn't get in. It just created quite a lot of disruption. Sometimes it's about making it that people have to pay attention to you, that they, they can't ignore you anymore. Way back in episode 9, Quaker activist Eileen Flanagan told us about four roles change agents can play. Advocate, rebel, organizer, and helper. Now, I imagine most people listening to Citizens Climate Radio are advocates. You may volunteer your time trying to convince the public and members of Congress that we need to put a price on carbon. You approach congressional members and staff with respect and cordiality as you educate and persuade them to support climate solutions. The rebel... (laughs) Well, the rebel exists to put pressure on those lawmakers to get them to act. Martin Luther King often talked about sort of creating a crisis or creating a tension that meant that someone who'd refused to engage with you up to that point had had to engage with you. And and in the end, our Prime Minister did attend that meeting, and and there were lots of different things happening, lots of pressure on him from different organisations to attend. Hopefully we we played a part in making that happen. This doesn't mean we all need to use these rebel tactics. As Bayard Rustin, the black gay civil rights leader said, quote, we need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers. In a moment, you'll hear about some tactics Caroline and Christian Climate Action use. Chatting with Carolyn, though, she seems like a very unlikely climate change activist rebel. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and for most of my adult life, I've been part of a charismatic church in the UK. 
as a child and a teenager, I um, didn't get that sense of caring for creation from my church, if you like. So thinking about John 3.16 and for God so loved the world, I always heard for God so loved the people. And it wasn't until I was a young adult that I started to realise that that it really did mean that God cared for the whole world, not just the people, that he also cared for everything else, the animals, the plants, everything, and that, and that God is redeeming the whole of creation, not just the people. When she grew concerned about climate change, Caroline approached it in ways familiar to many of us. Over the last two decades, I had made a lot of personal lifestyle change, you know, things like trying to be more energy efficient at home, and we don't own a car, we mostly use public transport. I put solar panels on my house. I still engage in that kind of thing. So for instance, at the minute, I'm doing what's called veganary. I don't, I don't know if that's just in the UK or, or elsewhere, but, but being vegan for a month to try that out as a diet, as a low carbon diet. So lots of different things to change my own lifestyle. I'd also encourage people in my town and in my church to make those sort of changes too. I had written to my MP, that's my member of parliament, to my local politician. I've met with them in my hometown. I'd gone to London to meet with them in the Houses of Parliament. I'd taken part in sort of marches and lobbies where people were asking politicians to do more. I'd written a lot of letters to, you know, large companies that I felt were damaging the earth and, and could do better. I'd done all of that. And I think all of that has a role, a role to play, hence I'm doing veganery at the minute. But I think just increasingly realised it wasn't having enough of an impact. It, when you looked at where we need to get to and how fast we need to get there to tackle the climate crisis, yeah, I thought this isn't all working. And then I had an opportunity to attend some sort of nonviolent direct action that was taking place around something called fracking. And through doing that, met other Christians who were doing that, and, and we formed Christian Climate Action. That was back in 2013. Little did Caroline know that the UK climate scene would soon be filled with even more rebels. Since 2018, approximately, we've been involved in something called Extinction Rebellion, which is a big protest movement here. And I, and I know it's, it's kind of gone global a bit, but it originated in the UK. When we kind of get involved in those protests, we're, we're sort of the Christian wing of Extinction Rebellion. That's how we've seen. We often hold prayer meetings or we Eucharist or that kind of thing within the middle of those protests, because for us, prayer and protest go together. Not only did the collaboration with Extinction Rebellion, or XR, bring in more people, it also gave Climate Christian Action a platform to be part of citywide actions. Back in episode 34, Robin Boardman shared with us the scale of the London actions. The Rebellion Day, November 17th, 2018, when we blocked five of the major bridges in London with around five to 6,000 people. Extinction Rebellion members insist we need to tell the truth about the climate crisis. And act as if that truth is real and stop hiding from it. <laughs> when I first met one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion and he first came to explain what they were thinking to members of CCA, I thought, well, if we, t if we really tell the truth, it's so depressing, it's so terrible. People will just kind of run, you know, they won't, won't want to hear. They'd, they'd rather hear the positive message if we just tweak a few things. But actually, it has worked, so it's had a huge impact. So as a result of the work that's happened, our government has declared a climate emergency. Lots of our local governments have declared even more urgent climate emergencies. They've put a more urgent date on getting to net zero. You know, I've worked for quite a few small climate change-focused charities, and it just became easier, I think, for them to have attention and to get funding to do what they do, because it just raised the profile. One of the hallmarks of these nonviolent direct action campaigns 
is creativity. Their creative innovations help open up the public's imagination. It's also sometimes about creating the kind of world you want to see, even if it's in a symbolic sort of way. So, for instance, we were involved in an action which blocked the entrance to a coal mine for a day, so it couldn't operate for the day. So it was basically saying we don't want to be extracting fossil fuels, so we're just going to create a situation where you can't extract them, even just for a short period of time. And often Extinction Rebellion protests within them, we try to almost like create the version of the world that we would like to see. So even people might bring plants um, to have in the middle of the protest or just kind of create the kind of world that we'd, we would like to live in. Sometimes direct action is just saying this needs to be done. We're fed up of asking. We're just going to make it happen. If it can be theatrical and if it can be fun as well, you know, it doesn't have to all be negative. Obviously, it is something really serious and it, and it can feel very depressing that we're potentially talking about a breakdown of societies as the climate emergency progresses. So sometimes we're, we're kind of mourning and, and we might be lamenting and mourning in a very theatrical sort of way. It can also be fun and that can draw people's attention. Outside a church denomination synod meeting, Christian Climate Action set up a dramatic display to reveal the seriousness and urgency of the crisis. We had cardboard coffins and, and flowers and, and held a whole service outside of that. And during their meeting, they made a decision to aim for net zero as a church by 2030, whereas previously, I think they were aiming for 2050. So they brought that target forward. And obviously what we did outside Synod was part of making that happen. Being a rebel, or as Rustin called them, angelic troublemakers, is not for everyone. In fact, in Extinction Rebellion, they often remind followers how a small percentage of people can make a big impact. Building on the research of people like Erica Chenoweth, who recognized that we need 3.5% of the population mobilized in order to create a system change, or that's a kind of maximum figure. The reality is that everyone in the climate movement benefits from the work these rebels do. They put pressure on leaders, so leaders are more willing to sit down with advocates about the solutions we are proposing. Through their efforts, Christian Climate Action UK has brought together a coalition of diverse Christians, adding to the public demand on leaders to address the climate emergency. And then within Christian Climate Action, our members come from a really wide range of, of churches. We've got Catholics, Anglicans, Baptists, Quakers. One thing I've, I really like about being a member of Christian Climate Action is that, yeah, is that we have that really broad base and we all have in common that we, that we care for God's creation. I think we probably have more in common than we have indifference, if you like. Um, and despite maybe having a range of opinions on other subjects, that's what's brought us together in common. So that's what we focus on. To learn more about Christian Climate Action, follow them on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit their website, christianclimateaction.org. Today, I feature two classical violinists who are not afraid to take risks. They choose to be good citizens as they remain faithful to their art. Meet Josie Davis. When I was four years old, I, I started begging for violin lessons and grew up in a family where the idea of private mentorship wasn't something that was totally accepted or understood. And so my mom asked me to wait until I was six to start lessons. And at that point in my life, music became a daily ritual. Music started to become, I guess, more clarifying that it was going to be something that was quite central to my life and to my career. And meet Josie's sister, Sophie Davis. So I grew up in a really small rural town in Maine that's coastal. 
And I spent a great deal of my childhood outside. And so I've developed a, a really strong appreciation for the natural world and just for paying attention and noticing what is going on out there. I took a climate change course when I was in high school. That class really started to inform me about the realities of climate change in the Gulf of Maine and just globally. Josie explains the need to combine their two passions. I have thought a lot about ways that music can feed into the dialogue around climate change, whether or not it promotes learning or reflection or understanding. The medium of music is powerful and that it's so evocative and it can it can really draw a response of tenderness, of love, of joy, of sadness, of grief. There is no competition or rivalry among these two professionally trained violinists, even as they worked hard together to hone their craft. I would say it was more play than work. For many, many years, we spent hours playing duets together and sharing the joy of learning together. And in addition to having the bond of being sisters and and that really, really close connection, we're also best friends. I've played with many, many people, but playing with my sister is is an effortless experience when we don't play for a little bit of time, which may just even be a couple of weeks. When we're able to do it, there's this sense of exhale that happens as we play together because it just feels so easy and so comfortable. I very much treasure that. Sophie shares how she and Josie founded Halcyon String Quartet four years ago. We really just wanted to play string quartet music and found the cellist. Well, I wouldn't say we found him. He was a good friend of ours and we started to play string quartets together. We decided we needed a name and then ended up really wanting to create a quartet that did more than just perform music, but had an environmental mission as well. As I heard these two sisters talk about their successes and challenges infusing their musical art with their concern for addressing climate change, it helped me identify six principles for creating climate art. One, know your stuff. Two, think locally. Three, pursue collaborations. Four, pivot to solutions. Five, promote action. And six, remain faithful to the art. So number one, Know your stuff. Sophie and Josie are both well-trained and skilled musicians. By the time they were high school seniors, their lives were immersed in practice and performance. They then both attended the same music conservatory. All of my coursework was focused in music in the conservatory, and I was spending between four and eight hours a day playing that concentrated period of four and a half years of music study, I think is really the time when you refine your craft because you have so much time, the luxury of time, to spend hours a day really deeply scrutinizing your technique and learning repertoire and understanding the craft in a nuanced way. The sisters also know their stuff when it comes to climate change. Both of my parents are scientists My father studies the oceans and my mom studies the mainland areas. We grew up having a lot of conversations as a family about what was happening in the world around us ecologically. 
really being observant to that. Some things that really have shaped my feelings about climate change are anecdotal in a lot of ways. Memories related to my experience as a child and how they've changed. For instance, I used to be able to walk from our house, which is on a saltwater river into town about four miles because it would ice over. And I used to be able to play outside all day long and never see a tick. And now Lyme disease is really prevalent in Maine. It's a dissuasion from being outside where ticks are in a way that it never used to be. We would scour the weather in the summer to find the hottest day that we could go to the beach because it would only ever reach 80 degrees maybe once or twice over the course of the summer months. And now we see these prolonged periods of heat waves. And so these kinds of changes have been really eye-opening to me and I think have been the impetus for really thinking about our responsibility as humans to respond to the urgency of climate change. I live in a community where a lot of people rely on the oceans for their livelihoods, whether it's fishing, lobstering, or the shellfish industry as a whole. Noticing that the sea level is rising or that the water temperatures are warming is alarming. It starts to affect the communities that are intimately surrounding us in ways that call for action. This brings us to the second principle, think locally. Staying, at least in this community, staying local is incredibly important. I think that's what people relate best to. It's also something really tangible. One thing that I'm particularly excited about here in Maine is just the influx of solar power and solar initiatives. And I think that's something, I don't know entirely how, would do a program focused around this, but it's something I've been exploring and just thinking about working with energy retrofit groups or things that have no artistic affiliation normally but I think would potentially be willing to partner for a project coming at it from a different perspective, not from the arts perspective, but linking that in. Change and action can be pretty impactful when it starts locally. And the idea of trying to influence whether or not it's politics or policy at at a larger scale can, can feel unmanageable or unrealistic in a lot of ways. But I think that the possibility for change from our local community And then that inspires change at the county level and then the state level and then works its way up. That feels really hopeful to both of us. Creating and performing art connected to a space leads to deeper relationships with the audience and within the community. We both feel most inspired when we're pulled back home. The audiences we've grown to know, we have relationships with a lot of the people that come to our concerts. It feels more reciprocal, I think, because we're building on something that's growing and deepening rather than maybe an experience that's a one-off or something that happens and then passes and you may never encounter those audiences again. Principle number three, pursue collaborations. There's a richness in getting a lot of people together to create something. One of our first collaborations that we did with an incredible artist who's based in Portland, Maine, Jill Pelto, who creates watercolor paintings using climate change data, but very specific to a place. They're pretty stunning paintings. I saw some of her work at a gallery showing and reached out and asked if we could collaborate. We did a performance that paired her artwork as well as some photographs that were depicting climate impacts in the Arctic and photographs of the local area here in Maine. 
We paired this imagery with music and then wrote a script that was kind of more of a storyline rather than an essay or something. We presented that with music we tried to match to the content. The sounds evoked certain emotions, tried to capture what the imagery was showing. And then we presented this for a, in a public performance and then also for two school assemblies and then got feedback from the students through a survey and a question and answer period. It's really hard to contextualize the data. And so working with an artist to, who can do that for us in a way has been really helpful. We did a few other performances that were less pointed, less specific. That was harder. I'm not sure that we really communicated the message that we wanted to. It was more of a, an evening of music with some visuals that didn't quite connect. As we have seen with other artists who we featured in the art house, Halcyon String Quartet is looking for ways to highlight solutions. That is principle number four, pivot to solutions. In other words, shift the focus away from climate impacts and instead envision and reveal the impacts of climate solutions. I was really inspired by a NPR piece several, I think it was at least a year ago now, looking at what the world will look like in 2100 if we tackle the major issues. It's a completely positive account of where we'll be in terms of what infrastructure looks like, what social structures look like, what our environmental regulations are, and how healthy we are. I would love to do something that involves students, maybe having them depict that, draw it, and then share their artwork as part of a performance, showing what the world will look like with the solutions in place rather than constantly nagging everyone to do their part that can get tiresome and is only effective for certain people. In addition to informing and inspiring audiences, artists need to consider how to engage their audiences. This leads us to the fifth principle, promote action. When we're able to engage the audience in a way that's more than just as a passive listener, the outcome can be more impactful. That said, Josie explains, finding ways to engage the audience so that it leads to action is still a work in progress. As we're thinking about this next stage of work to address climate change that's more action-oriented, we have started to talk more about ways that we can use our concerts or, or our projects to show change, to show action, and to inspire action. I don't have an answer. It's something that I'm still evolving. Partnering with other organizations or other artists or other scientists or policymakers or community members, elected community members, for instance, is a really great way to push the work forward. Finally, Sophie and Josie constantly strive to embrace principle number six, remain faithful to the art. Josie explains how we have to push ourselves and our audiences. We're at this inflection point where the music that we've been playing has been highly dominated by Eurocentric white men, male composers. That's problematic. As we've been thinking about ways to reimagine our program, we've also been learning about how tunnel focused we were in our education around this region and this kind of composer. Both my sister and I have been spending a lot of time thinking about ways that we can share music by underrepresented composers and music that's not just based in European traditions. Because I think when we're trying to tell stories, whether or not it's musical experiences, experiences that are purely musical or projects that 
encompass other topics like climate change. We have to think about representation and what we do. Sophie and Josie also recognize the temptation to play music that is familiar to the audience, those well-known classical hits that are easy listening. I've thought a lot about this because there are a number of pieces I would love to play, but, but don't for that reason. Though the more I've thought about it, the more I think it's possible to play those if they're paired with imagery. I also find most music that's not too long, if it's played in a really compelling way, I'm more willing to take a chance at this point. There's an element of trying to play what audiences will like, and there's an element of showing them things they've never heard before. And I'm really passionate about doing both of those things. I don't know that artists or musicians are going to solve climate change in any way or be at the forefront of the actual decisions that people need to make in order to reduce our impact. But I do think that musicians are really good partners and really good storytellers. There's an opportunity to be communicators in a way that I think is going to be really important. It's a story that I think resonates most with people and too often science and climate change are not presented in a way that's telling a story. They're very dry and disconnected from humanity and I think climate change is probably the most connected to humanity that we can get in terms of issues that we face. Find out more about Josie, Sophie, and the other two members of Halcyon String Quartet at the website halcyonstringquartet.org. There you will also see videos, photos, and learn about upcoming events. That's halcyonstringquartet.org. Hey there, I'm Peter Santoscano, and you are listening to Spirit in Action. Coming up, Esteban Gast, a comedian who is conquering climate change. That and the weight of carbon dioxide and chihuahuas. I'll break in here to remind you, as Peterson Toscano just did, that you're listening to Spirit in Action. Website is northernspiritradio.org. But instead of me, Mark helps me to host, we've got Peterson Toscano in my place today. There are links to Peterson and Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson's guests on northernspiritradio.org along with links to all of the hundreds, actually thousands of guests, that we've shared with you since 2005. There's a place to post your comments on our shows. Please do. We're listening as well as talking. And there's a place to support us with your donations. We count on you, not government or corporations, because real people are who we want to serve. What we're going to do is to head back to the second half with Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson Toscano, today's Spirit in Action guest host. Every month on Citizens Climate Radio, I feature artists who stir up conversations about climate change. Beyond the facts and figures, the data sets and the policy proposals, artists bring something special. 
They move audiences to feel deeply about a topic that's too big for our brains to process. Artists stir up empathy. They reveal what scientists and climate communicators are trying to tell us. And artists inspire each other. And that's what happened to me recently. As a result, I can share with you the very silly yet serious audio essay I created. It's entitled, The Weight of Carbon Dioxide and Chihuahuas. But first, I chat with Esteban Gast, the inspiring comedian conquering climate change. Even when he's serious, Esteban is funny. One of the standard questions I ask all my guests is, if you were to meet someone new and they ask you, so what do you do, what do you say? I'm a comedian and writer and host, question mark? Uh, Maybe that's the thing. Maybe I answer in a question, right? So I go, I'm a storyteller. I think I went through phases, right? So I was a teacher and then I was like just doing stand-up and then I went and ran this eco-community in rural Panama. We've all done that. And then I was a writer. So a lot of times I just go, oh, I'm a comedian and writer. I really love telling stories that matter, particularly silly stories. If I could tell a silly story that matters or like teaches someone about anything, ooh, that's like the sweet spot. And perhaps the sweetest spot in the climate change podcast scene right now is Esteban's new show, Comedians Conquering Climate Change. Picture like a late night show, like old school Johnny Carson or whatever it is, Jamie Fallon now or Stephen Colbert. It's like, we try to do that in 15 minutes. So we come up and there's a monologue about some of the latest clean energy news or just like funny stories, right? Again, it's a mix of like genuine news that's happening that's really exciting. And like, this is just a silly story or this is something, you know, inconsistent that we can poke fun at. So we've got a monologue and the whole time there's a guest co-host and that's the comedian who is coming along. So I'm sort of steering the ship and they're like throwing in quips, they're responding. And then we have a game. Maybe it's a guessing game or it's like a sketch or it is we wrote songs, catchy, fun little pop songs to try to get people to think about things a little bit differently. We're like, you know what? Everyone loves pop songs. Let's write a pop song about the you know, the economy of solar on your roof because it is good. And at the end, we end with a really specific call to action. We threw out a bunch of fun statistics. But if you want to learn more about your state's great. If you want to actually petition for people to do that, or if you want to just get on a newsletter and get some information and just start this journey, here's a way to do that. All right, we laughed. We did the thing. So what? Where do we go from here? How do we think more about this? Esteban, I just so much love your show. It's it's like fresh, it's fast-paced, it's funny. But how did it all get started? I, a little bit ago, linked up with the folks at Generation 180. They're this incredible nonprofit. They exist to help, like, equip and educate people to fight against climate change, right? To help equip people to help push the frontier of clean energy, accelerate our nation's transition to clean energy is the exact wording. And they're doing that in a bunch of different things. It's like a bunch of climate solutions that we've heard about. Solar for schools is a cool thing where they put solar panel on schools, which I'm like, obviously, everyone do this. Why? (laughs) And talk about electric vehicles. And then they do really, really interesting things creatively and message. Message Messaging-y? Messaging-ly? You know what I mean. (laughs) With their message. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not the best 
messenger of their messagey things. They have, like, cartoons that they commissioned that are original cartoons for every newsletter. Like, they just are really creative folks, truly passionate about artists and, and equipping artists and equipping everyone. They were like, we've thought about doing a podcast. And it was like a beautiful brainstorm where we, like, both sort of came up with the idea. And I was like, hey, I could just, like, bring in comedian friends and we could do this. Because I think there's a, a lot of wonderful podcasts, yours included, and where people can get a lot of climate info. And we were like, do we sit down with a scientist? What do we do? And we're like, you know what? Let's have it be two comedians. Comedy, right, and, and stories and art comes from a really authentic place. And if it's something that you are authentically excited about, that you find interesting, that you're, like, reading about in your free time or whatever that looks like, then I think it's so easy to incorporate that into your art. I think where art gets bent out of shape is if someone at the last second goes, oh, wait, what if we do this social impact? And and they put it in. They sprinkle it on up top, hoping no one will notice or, or hoping that, did I do it? Did I check the box? The comedy that I try to do and the art that I try to create is born out of the things that I'm actually thinking about and, and reading about. I actually am interested in climate change and clean energy. Growing up with my dad talking about that and going and seeing An Inconvenient Truth when it came out with Al Gore, and I was like eight years old, you know, it's like, I'm fairly young. I was way too young. But my dad being like, no, let's sit down and watch this, right? And so starting these like flagpoles of, of my identity, of my interests, starting really young. So I think... For me, hopefully, it doesn't feel jaded. It doesn't feel disingenuous. It feels like, hey, these are things I'm actually thinking. You know, it's like you could ask me now where, what it, you know, like what's happening right now with President Joe Biden and his climate agenda. And, and I, even if I didn't have the podcast, Comedians Conquering Climate Change, even if I didn't work with Generation 180 in the way that I did, it's like I would still know. I would still be interested in it because I'm interested in it. An inconvenient truth. Okay. So many guests in the past 69 episodes point to that movie as being incredibly important to their climate awakening. But I actually have a confession to make. <laughs> I never saw An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, when it came out, my dad, Pete Toscano, this working class guy from the Bronx in New York City, he called me one day about it. At that time, he was like watching, I don't know, like 10 movies a week. And he would come up with these one or two line reviews about them. So he's on the phone from New York and he says, yeah, I showed that Al Gore movie, The Inconvenient One. That movie, wow, it's so important and it's boring as hell. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> um, I'd love for you to share with my listeners why a climate podcast with comedians is so important right now. If people engage with climate change in a way that is like silly and light and whimsical, like that is enough, right? The hope is is perhaps that they engage with our stuff and then they are like invited in, right? It's an invitation in to think about these things more. And then they find a bunch of resources, including Citizen Climate Radio. Yeah, we're not providing them like this in-depth thing. We're, we are just merely being like, let's engage with this topic in a way that is silly and light and banter and it's quick, it's 15 minutes, we're in, we're out. To me, it's revolutionary for people to be like, wait, I left during a climate change conversation, right? It's like, I, it wasn't horrible. I didn't feel heavy. And then with that, they can, yeah, they can further engage. So we're really trying to reach people who, who are maybe already interested in this stuff, but, is, but especially is <laughs> like, knows that it's a thing, but like, I don't want to Google it. Oh, it's just going to be bad news. Those people are so important who like 
have a heart for this stuff who want to find out more but but just think it's like a it's thing that's impossible to there's all these different ways and we're just trying to offer a different touch point and we're just trying to be this very silly bridge this bridge where they like tap dance their way over (laughs) i don't think i've heard climate change and tap dancing ever in the same conversation before what works so well on your show is this playful banter that you have with the guest comedian who, I don't know, sometimes knows very little about climate change, which is great because, gosh, there is so much climate jargon out there. The conversation has been going on for so long, rightfully so. I mean, this is uh, in a disheartening way, right? Like in 1980, the UN was like, hey, guys, climate change. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us, you know, (laughs) 40 years and then we'll start to really think about this. Having someone be a surrogate for an audience who is a little bit nervous and doesn't exactly know or has these questions, right? Like, but I think part of that is, oh, wait, PPM? Like, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Like, what parts per million? Like, and what exactly, which one, which gas is the not good one? I'm so sorry. And like, like planting trees helps or doesn't, but it helps in the right place. Like, what and the right tree in the right place? Who knows that? Are, am I, have I been planting the wrong tree in the wrong place? You brought some clips for me to share with listeners, but before we get to those, I have two questions. And now the first one is about hope. (laughs) These days, it can feel like hope is so rare, especially for those of us folks doing climate work. How do you address the dread and fear so many people feel? We have a commitment to optimism, but I think two things. I think one is like informed optimism, right? We don't want it to be like close your eyes and and laugh. All the people who come out on the show are are comedians. They're they're usually touring comedians and like stand up comedy for the most part. And I think a bunch of them don't know, for example, that like solar power is the cheapest power. They uh, they don't know that California grid, like when you use electricity, is a ton of renewable energy and it's like growing and growing. If I'm switching to electric in California and other states are following this, like it's pretty good, man. We're we're using a ton of renewable energy in that way, or whatever it is, right? Like so, a bunch of that is like informed optimism of like I bet you don't even. No, because we hear that that's like, one, that there's good things happening or, or that they're like, we're gaining some momentum in this fight against climate change. Or two, I bet you can't even picture how to envision a future, right? A lo- I think a lot of people know what the world will look like if everything is horrible, right? That there's a lot of doomsday scenarios. And there's like not that many movies that it's like, it's 2050. And you know what? World looks pretty good. Like you can, whatever, walk to a park and public transportation ooh it's clean and it's fast and it's beautiful and you know like <laughs> that, that, no that's a really great approach and I'm sure the humor helps too it, it relaxes people when they laugh okay here's the second question and it's about audience so you're appearing here on episode 70 of Citizens Climate Radio and we have thousands of listeners but when it comes to creating a show I really only have one person in mind, Susan Miller. Susan Miller is a Citizens Climate volunteer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She's married with children and now grandchildren. She's super committed to doing climate work and she can easily become overwhelmed. So she wants to be reminded about how important this work is. She also needs to hear good news. And she definitely appreciates someone curating all the information that's out there. So every every show is made for Susan Miller. 
And fortunately, there are a lot of people just like Susan Miller, so they also benefit. Yeah, I love that. I think, Peter, you've got a a great takeaway, which we talk a lot at Generation 180, and for people listening in terms of how to, whatever, do climate communications in this certain way. And I think it is the specificity is so important. You thinking of Susan Miller is so good. Us sort of being like, oh, you know what? We're going to go for this audience that is going to respond to comedy. We're going to help be this bridge. Whatever that looks like is so important to get really specific. And I, and I think, frankly, we're, we're still defining exactly our Susan Miller. Weirdly, what is specific is universal, right? Like, I do think just about anyone could listen to ours and find something meaningful. But we're not thinking of everyone. If I get caught up in that urgency, everyone needs to know. You know, it's like, no, I am creating a gift for a very specific person. Uh, I'm going to honor their time. I'm going to honor where they are at in terms of their, like, climate journey, just as specific as possible. I hope the podcast is an invitation, a constant invitation for people to think about these things, an invitation to ask questions, an invitation to not know things, an invitation to go, like, Am I allowed to do this, right? An invitation for people who think this isn't a place for them because they're not scientists, because they don't have whatever, an electric car, you know, because they're not really deeply invested. They're like, can I care about this and not know how to compost? (laughs) And you're like, yes, literally everyone is invited. I think a lot about how to frame it and how to have it feel as an invitation to both the comedian and the listener. All right. (laughs) It's time to hear some excerpts. Welcome to Comedians Conquering Climate Change. This is a podcast where we talk shop on climate change and clean energy with comedians because we love alliteration. Are you ready to conquer climate change? We're going to do it today and we're going to do it together. If only we'd have met up 20 years ago, we could have gotten this out of the way a long time ago. Yeah, but, <laughs> climate change is just existing. People are like, when are MK and Esteban going to get into <laughs> right. a room and record a really quick podcast? Exactly. In a way, there is nothing more American than a pickup truck. So to have an electric vehicle that is a pickup truck, it's like marijuana. You know what I mean? Like this is the gateway drug to environmentalism. California just voted to outlaw the sale of new gas-powered lawnmowers, leaf blowers, and chainsaws. We're getting a rake at every meal we sit down at now. It's like they're just at the table. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you guys want to come over for dinner? Get here at five, we'll rake, and we'll eat at seven. (laughs) One time, I I think I saw an internet video that somebody had a rake, and they had like little hot dogs on each of the (laughs) points of the rake, and that's where they were grilling hot dogs. So you could actually do a rake and bake, like a rake and dinner. A rake and bake. A rake and bake. You know what you can't? do that with gas-powered leaf blowers. China is planning this massive new clean energy project. It's got uh, solar and wind. It's half the size of Belgium, which would be so impressive if I knew how big Belgium was. I mean, I feel like (laughs) I kind of know Belgium, but I don't really know. It's a very confusing metric. Like, part of me is like, smaller than France, question mark? It's like saying, oh yeah, it's the same size as 45,000 horses. Like, (laughs) Like, how... Okay, that seems like a big area, but (laughs) why are we using that metric? (laughs) Okay, yeah. Okay, I'll play it. You sing this round. Okay. Spending money on subsidies. Thought it'd be good, but it's not for me. I want an earth that is healthy. I'm really giving money to all the wrong things. 
subsidies. Yeah, yeah. Talking about those subsidies. Not for me, not for me. We're saying subsidies. Yeah, subsidies. Yeah, oh, yeah, baby. Those were clips of Esteban Gast and his guest, Josh Bernstein, Bianca Cristoval, and M.K. Paulson. Esteban, it's a really great show. I love listening to it. And I need right now to go and give you a five-star review and write a review over at Apple Podcast. I mean, right? It's great having people listen to the show, but they can actually support the show when they go over there and rate and review it. How can my listeners follow you and find your podcast? Yeah, you can find uh, the show everywhere podcast is. It's called Comedians Conquering Climate Change. Like you said, Peterson, it's amazing if you like leave a review or stars. It is so funny. Totally. The people who are like, oh, my gosh, I love your show. And I was like, like, thank you for telling me. Also telling me publicly um, in a review format. Boy, does that help. You can find out everything Generation 180 is doing at generation180.org. They are like truly are committed to flipping this script from doom and gloom to gloom to gloom from doom and gloom to hope and optimism. Uh, they're doing an incredible job. And you can, if you want to, I also have a bunch of other projects that are like similarly education entertainment-y and I'm at real R-E-A-L Esteban Gast E-S-T-E-B-A-N G-A-S-T on just about every social media. Thank you so much, Esteban Guest, for coming on the show. My listeners are going to love you. Amazing. Thank you. This was so fun. Those were such wonderful questions. I hope I didn't ramble too much. Uh, <laughs> now you're like the power of the editor. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I've got the editing tools, and you've given me so much good stuff to work with. Now it is time for the art house. Now, I don't know about you, but working on climate change totally can stress me out. When I mentioned this to my doctor, she suggested I get a dog. She explained that caring for a dog can get my mind off my troubles, and walking a dog is relaxing, and it's also good for my health, good exercise. If I were to get a dog, likely I would want to get a chihuahua. And, and for this, I totally blame my neighbor Janine. Janine has an adorable chihuahua named Chica. And Chica is old. I don't know how old Chica is, like 15 years old, and has this like raspy bark. It's like, I wonder if like Chica earlier in life had been a smoker or something. Of all the dogs, a chihuahua is the smallest breed. The average chihuahua is like two to six pounds. In fact, they're so small that they're often born with a soft spot on their heads, like human babies, because their head is too big for the birth canal. Chihuahuas are also super smart, maybe too smart. They have the largest brain-to-body ratio of any dog. The ancient Aztecs of old believed that the early ancestors of the Chihuahuas had these special powers to take a disease away from a human. Back in those days, Chihuahuas were used sort of like as hot packs. Uh, and maybe that's why they like to sit on our laps so much. Centuries-old folklore suggests that chihuahuas were able to cure respiratory ailments such as asthma and allergies. And, you know, you can almost imagine, like, the traditional healer being sent in because someone's sick, and the traditional healer, you know, doing a little diagnosis, 
and then finally says, you know what? I'm going to prescribe for you four chihuahuas. Yeah, it's serious. You need the four chihuahuas. So here we are again in the modern age, and a doctor is encouraging a human, me, to get a dog. And it just may be time. Because not too long ago, I heard Dr. Neil Leary at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania talking about climate change. He said something in his talk about fossil fuel pollution I had never considered before. So he was talking about gasoline and carbon dioxide, and then he talked about the weight of carbon dioxide, which was so weird because like, to me, it was like, you know, an angel on a pinhead. We add it up by parts per million. It's like, seems so tiny. What is the weight of carbon dioxide? All right, let's work backwards. A gallon of gasoline weighs about six pounds, which is actually lighter than water. A gallon of water weighs eight pounds. And where do we get our petroleum from for our cars? We get that gallon of gas from crude oil. But how do we get crude oil? How is it produced? Okay, this is where the numbers go off the charts. 98 tons of organic matter is compressed over millions of years. And that is what is needed to produce enough crude oil to produce a single gallon of gasoline. My brain it cannot envision 98 tons. I don't know what that is. So I need to compare it to something else. 98 tons. Now, listen, I'm no mathematician, so these are like rough estimates here. But 98 tons would equal approximately 40 acres of wheat, the stalks, heads, and roots. 98 tons would add up to approximately 33 adult female African elephants. 98 tons could be, I don't know, 55 cars. Oh, oh, and, and 98 tons would add up to approximately 40,000 chihuahuas. So could you imagine this? 40,000 chihuahuas piled on top of each other, being smooshed together for millions of years to produce enough crude oil to produce one gallon of gasoline. Now, this is when it gets really freaky, and this is when it started haunting me. So that one gallon of gasoline, which weighs six pounds approximately, once it goes through your system, we put it into our cars physically, it combusts and combines with oxygen and produces 20 pounds of carbon dioxide. Now, while it's impossible for me to grapple with 98 tons of organic matter or 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide molecules, I can totally understand 20 pounds. I know what it feels like to gain 20 pounds, and I know how hard it is to lose those 20 pounds. I can totally envision 20 pounds. Ten sweet, adorable chihuahuas that weigh two pounds each. When I hear 20 pounds, it immediately makes me think of sugar, though. Not individual granules of sugar, but those four-pound bags of sugar, five of them. 20 pounds of sugar. These bags have weight. They have mass. Five pounds of sugar? Well, (laughs) it can do damage to a body, carried or consumed. And what if I did it, though? And every time I went anywhere and used a gallon of gas, I put another 20 pounds on my body. Gallon! After gallon, I'm like adding them up 20 plus plus 20 plus 20 plus 20. Because the thing is, it's invisible. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't taste it. We can't see it with our eyes. But it's there. 
all around us, weighing us down. You know, it's not just me, but like government, officials. Government needs to do something about this. For instance, the the president has a specially outfitted armor limo that weighs over 11,000 pounds. It's estimated that at best it gets eight miles to the gallon, at best. So a trip from, say, Wilmington, Delaware, to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C., the home of President Joe Biden, it's approximately 111 miles. That would be about 888 gallons of gasoline. That means one trip churns out over 17,000 pounds of carbon dioxide. That's over 71,000 chihuahuas. What does this all mean to me? I'm not sure, but it definitely ramps up my effort to say we need to put a price on carbon. And I think I've decided I'm going to ditch my car. We'll just be a one-car family. And perhaps it's time that I get that chihuahua. Thank you for joining me today on Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from Citizens Climate Radio, which is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that we know will greatly reduce the pollution, which leads to climate change. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference. We want to tell you more about it. Visit cclusa.org slash price on carbon. That's cclusa.org slash price on carbon. Now, back to Mark Helpsmeet. Thanks, Peterson, for sitting in for me today for Spirit in Action. And folks, please remember to follow the links to all of the wonderful shows and programs that Peterson does. Not only Citizens Climate Radio, but lots more. Peterson is so gifted, and he always takes his blessings and turns them into gifts for others. I hope you all both enjoyed it and learned from it today. And we'll be back next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh